I think when you have that burning desire to tell a story, that's your gut telling you you have to. It's almost a fight or flight instinct. You have to write. Writers have to write. So whatever medium you choose, whether it's a book or a script or a film, if you want to shoot it, whatever you want to do, I think just tell your story. Mm -hmm. And just remember, like, you are the only one who has your story. Hey guys, welcome back to the show. This is MILF Podcast, the show where we talk about motherhood, entrepreneurship, sexuality, and everything in between. I'm Jennifer Tracy, your host. Welcome. I hope everybody had who celebrated Christmas had a great Christmas. And I'm so excited to introduce today's guest. And I have a little treat for you if you've been feeling as crazy around the holidays as I usually do. You might need this. And if you're in the LA area, I'm so sorry, the people that aren't in the LA area. But this beautiful company called Unplug um, is offering MILF listeners one free class. So all you have to do is show up. They have two locations. They have one here on La Brea, and then they have one in the Valley in Studio City. And if you show up before the end of January 2020 and just mention MILF podcast, you get a free class. That's only if you've not been there before. So if you're already going, then you're already zenned out. But if you want to try it, they have uh, meditation classes, they have sound baths. I mean, it's it's really, it's really beautiful. It's just like a place to go and like unplug, <laughs> as the name suggests. So anyway, I'm so thrilled to be partnering with them, and I can't wait to go to my next one. And I really want to go check out a sound bath there. I love a sound bath. Oh, man. It's so, I really sound so LA right now, but I really do love it. It's just so relaxing. So there's that. And then I want to just mention again, Hope Scarves is my highlighted give for this month. Hope Scarves is an organization that started because one woman was going through cancer treatment and she lost her hair and another woman gave her scarves. And when she was done, she said, hey, do you want your scarves back? And the lady said, no, you need to pass those on to someone else who's going through treatment. And so... The woman who then passed them on, Laura McGregor, who's a warrior goddess, and I just adore her, started this movement. And so now hopescarves.org, which is where you can find them, is this beautiful organization, and they gift scarves. You can gift a scarf to somebody. You can um, anonymously gift a scarf. You can order them. Uh, you can also share your story, your story of cancer treatment, your story of being affected by cancer. You know, because our stories are really the most important thing. That's, I mean, that's why I do this, because that's the most healing thing is to hear someone else share their story and know that you're not alone in yours. It's just, that's how I can get through my days, honestly. So um, yeah, check that out. And uh, what else? Just easy does it in this next week. I think there's a lot of pressure to, you know... New Year's and what are you going to do for New Year's Eve? And which is funny because since I had my child, it was so great because I was like, oh, literally nothing and being in bed by nine. I just don't, I haven't liked going out on New Year's for quite some time. A, because I don't drink and it's crazy. B, because it's expensive and overcrowded. And, you know, everybody gets pretty wasted most places. And I just don't, not that that bothers me in any way that it makes me want to drink or anything, luckily, but it's just not my jam. I just don't want to be around a bunch of drunk people. 
And I mean, I really like to be in bed early because I get up at five every morning. So, but that's really not what I was getting at. What I was getting at is this pressure to like start the new year off and like make it great and 2020 is going to be it. And you know, the truth is like, yes, yes. And we're starting a new decade and all these things. It's an election year. Oh my God, don't even get me started. But it's also just another day, you know, and every day that we wake up, we have a chance to start fresh and start over. And every hour and every minute we can start over and, and change things that need to be changed and amend things that need to be amended. So I don't know. I just, I kind of wanted to just say that, you know, I hope you're, you can give yourself a break and just know that you're doing fucking awesome, whatever you're doing. So now I'm going to introduce Erica Messer. I love Erica so much and I can't wait for you to listen to this interview. She's so badass and she's so humble and she's so fucking beautiful. It's ridiculous. I mean, I say it every time I see her, I'm like, you're so beautiful. Like I can't, I think we might've been lovers in another lifetime or something. Cause I get around her and I just feel like a teenage boy that doesn't know what to say. She's just so but I mean, and that's just one layer of how awesome she is. She's brilliant. She's incredibly hardworking. She's so dedicated to her family and her husband. Well, one and the same, but her her kids and her husband. Um, yeah, she's badass. Badass. So enjoy my conversation with Erica Messer. Hi, Erica. Hi. Oh my God, I'm so excited you're here. I'm going to bring your microphone a little closer to you. So, okay. Number one, I've had a crush on you from the moment I met you. <laughs> Number two, you do not age. <laughs> you don't. I'm like, God, yeah. you have not aged a day since I met you. We've we met a long time ago. Like we met 17 before, years. I was ago. gonna say before kids. Before you had kids. Yeah. yeah. You're kind to you have... say that. It's, it's real lighting though. or something. No, it's je- it's genes. So I want to talk about your writing career, your illustrious writing career. I know you're gonna be humble about it because that's who <laughs> you are. You're you're. But you are, I'm just going to brag on her because she mm-hmm. won't do it. You're one of the top writers in television, top showrunners. Like you have created, produced, written more television than most women in the history of television. And it's just so impressive. And you're just so talented. And I want to kind of start, if you don't mind, from like the beginning of that trajectory. I'm actually breathless talking about it because I'm so excited. Um, Like, where'd you go to college? Did you always know you wanted to be a writer? Did you write as a kid? Let's start there. Okay. I grew up on the East Coast. and In Maine, right? No, in Maryland. Maryland. Like D.C. and Maryland. Yeah. And I loved to tell stories and didn't really write necessarily until there was an assignment that in fourth grade, like you have to write a book, a children's book. And so I remember loving this assignment and thinking about it and like not understanding necessarily that you needed conflict to tell a good story, but almost recognizing it from all the reading I had done as a kid or hearing stories, you know, there has to be conflict. Nobody really mentioned that when we had to write our book. So I chose this place called Pickleberry Place, but the king was a cucumber. And so there's just inherent conflict in this story. He didn't didn't fit in. He didn't fit in, but he was their leader. Oh, yeah. So it was a whole thing. And 
I remember. Do you still dr- have that book? I bet it's at my parents' house. Aww. I bet you it is, and I hope I hope it is because it's probably it, with all the LPs. That's my guess. It's like in that closet yes. with all the LPs. Yes, the so, 80s, the 80s oh, stuff. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and I never really thought about it then, but when people have asked me since, like what's the first thing you remember loving to write or whatever? It's Pickleberry Place. It definitely was this little book. And then as schooling went on and term papers and all that stuff, I never had the anxiety that all my peers had about like, oh my God, I got to write this thing. I have to do this. And this was back in the day when you went to the library, when it wasn't like a computer. Laptops. Yeah. yeah. You weren't, you were researching in a library. You were printing on a dot matrix printer. I sound ancient. No, I'm right there with you. But like, yeah, yeah, so it's like all all of microfiche. that Oh, my crochet. My But that's like awesome now. Yeah. Like if you think about yeah. like, I don't know. I want to tell a show where you have to use microfiche, yes, but yes. um so none of it was stressing me out. I mean, other than the normal being stressed about being in school. And then once I got into college, I, the first couple of years, I didn't know what I was going to do. And where'd you go to school? I went to Florida State and then Salisbury University, which is a really small liberal arts school in Maryland. And the first, the, the Florida State year was very, I was just lost. It was, it was such a big university and I loved being there. My older brother was there. I loved the of it all. I loved all that big school stuff. But when it came to the classes, you're taking your generals and you're in a class with, you know, 1500 kids in bio. And I'm like, oh, this isn't really how I'm going to thrive. And so I applied to the school that I swore I wouldn't apply to because it was kind of in the backyard of where I grew up and ended up finding my way there and really settling into communication arts. And then within that documentary films was like my jam. It, it actually, was, it I goes, didn't know this. yeah, it went from communication arts to film, television, radio. And then within that, it was documentaries. So you could really find what you wanted to do. That's and, awesome. you know, so for a minute you, you're like, oh, maybe it's journalism. Nope. Maybe it's PR. Nope. Maybe it's the, you, right. So you, in a smaller university, you have a chance to sort of discover, test things yeah, out. test things yeah. out and kind of learn what you don't want to do, yeah. which helps you find what you do want to do. So then when I moved to Los Angeles after I graduated, there was really no work in LA for documentary. All the work was in New York because all the 2020 and Dateline and 48 Hours, all those things were in New York. And when you really look at them, they're documentaries. Some of them are short, some of them are, right? But it's it's a doc. And I had a job offer for 48 Hours in New York. And I felt like it was too close to home. It was like a train ride away. I really thought, let's give LA a shot. So my boyfriend at the time, now my husband, and, and I— And you guys are high school sweethearts. Yes. I love this story. Yes. That's so sweet. So we moved out here— um, And he was an actor comic at the time. Yes. Okay. Yeah. So we—and we had friends who lived in L.A. who were in the music industry back before that bubble really burst. Mm. And we just lived on this house, in this house on Stanley Avenue, right behind the Starbucks. I with, know exactly where right? that is, where all with, the fourplexes are and stuff. Yeah. But with so many people, I don't even know. I am <laughs> not even sure. That's what you do. You, but go, you have to. You have to. 
So you're and your like, rent was still like a thousand dollars just yeah, for the two of right. you for that your portion of the mm-hmm. rent or something crazy. Yeah, something crazy. And all those people now, like half of them are still in LA, half have moved on. But anytime I'm in that part of town, I just I drive by and just I'm back there in a second because yeah. you just remember what it was like. Yes, when you were starting out and yes. the city was new and. The routes were new and, you know, to learn LA from that area was great because then I knew my directions, you know. And you had a Thomas Guide. And we had a Thomas Guide. For those of you not in LA, a Thomas Guide was, now we don't need them anymore, but it was a big, it was a book because LA is so spread out that was a map. It was pages and pages and pages of maps and you had to like go to the back and get the key and look at the, I mean, it was crazy. Yeah. When you think about it now or when you try to explain it, it just sounds so antiquated. It's so like, what are you talking about? But it you was a lifesaver. You had to have it. Have it and then they car. put it out every year, but you could never really afford to spend 50 bucks for the Thomas Guide. So you'd get the old one yeah. or whatever. Yeah. But the Thomas Guide, Thomas I don't remember Guide. what, we were like F7. Yeah. Yes, I was yeah. going to say F7 because I live still near, right near there. Yeah. 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 So when I moved here, I kind of made a deal that I didn't want to do something I could have done back in Maryland. And back in Maryland, I was waiting tables, bartending. Um, I was a licensed manicurist in the state of Maryland. Stop it right now. Until You were? Oh, yeah. Up until like, okay, my dad passed in 2004 and he was the one who would like always get the renewal thing and he'd be like, hey, Peanut, you want to renew your license? Mm. I'm like, yes. Yes. Just so, in case. just in case. Until 2004. <laughs> you're already like producing shows and you're like, just in case, I need to keep that. Isn't that such? But that's the life of a writer and an artist. You're always like, oh, this could all go away at any moment. Right. Do you still feel that way today? Totally. Yeah. 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 I don't think it goes away. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. Maybe. I mean, I have friends yeah. who've had seven. New York Times bestsellers, they're wildly successful authors, and they're like, oh, no, my next book's going to tank, and people are going to find out I suck, and I will never work again. And I'm like, what? Like, I But it's- It's the I imposter mean, syndrome. Imposter syndrome. And I'm convinced, uh, you know, I've not written a book, but I'm convinced every script will be the one that's like, oh, They yeah. find you out. So, okay, so you said you didn't want to do what you could have done in New York. So what was, what were, what was offered at the time? And how old were you? 23? 23. Yep. And I just sort of made that deal with myself. I don't even think I said it to anyone else. Just like, okay, don't go work at the Gap. Don't go work at a restaurant. You could have done that there. You know, get yourself in and around the people you want to be in and around. So I had a friend who had lived here for a few years. He knew of a temp agency. And back in the day, the temp agencies were so sought after that you had to be recommended. Oh, it was a whole thing. It was a whole thing. It was very hard to get work yeah. as a temp. Yeah. And so my friend said, call this temp agency. Um, there's a whole story there where I went to the temp agency, which is on Wilshire and La Cienega for all the LA people, on the corner of Wilshire and La Cienega. So here I go, like, I, I kind of place. know where I am yeah. and I go into this big building and I'm like, I'm looking for this temp agency. And the gentleman at the door is really lovely, but he's like, honey, I think you're in the wrong building. I was in the Flint publication building. <laughs> and I think he just like saw this like wholesome girl walking in and was like, no. So it was across the street. It was still Wilshire and La Cienega. It was just the other side of the street. Yeah. Anyway. And then, I mean, it took like weeks to get an interview with them. Then I was on their list, like 
deep on their list. So I think I didn't get work until August. And I had moved here in June. Oh, wow. So even though I was like trying to get my ducks in a row, it just took a while for it all to happen. And then once I did, the agency had a, a contract with Fox. So all of the work was happening on the Fox lot. And with the studio network, didn't matter. You just went where you were needed. And um, my first long-term gig there was in the casting department at the network. And everyone was so nice. Oh, Just like the nicest group of people. And the other assistants were nice. And then I just started returning to sort of that third floor of building 88 on the Fox lot. And all the other assistants just kind of took me in and they're like, here's the job list. Here's the opportunities with the company. You should apply and, you know, think about this one, not that one. You know, they knew who the nice people were to work for and all that. And I applied for a job with um, a guy who had just been promoted to vice president of drama series. His name's Jeff Eckerly. And he was super nice and from Wisconsin, sort of a small town Midwest guy. And um, I started working for him in September of 1996 and got to see what it was to be a network exec. You know, I, I saw every script that came in, every cut that came in, sat in on notes calls. And that year that I did that was so valuable to me now mm. because- a huge part of your job as a writer is dealing with executives and their thoughts. And I just always looked at them as the freshest eyes on a project. The executives. Yeah. Mm. And some people who haven't had maybe the experience working at the network they don't think they're look the at enemy. that way. Yeah. And I it's mean, just that's not. been my, what I've heard. I've not worked in that area, yeah. but yeah, they're but scared of it. Yeah. But it's just not, it's not that. Yeah. If you look at it from their perspective, which I had the yes. ability to do because I had been in that world, even as an assistant, as a fly on the wall, you're still seeing what is going into it. And and at that time, were you reading all the scripts that were coming in? Yeah. So you were just reading scripts every night? I was reading scripts every night, and I was writing specs at the time. Um, just for yourself? Just for just myself. Because like- I didn't have movie magic. I did it in, like, Word or whatever. Right. So you're doing your own right. What's movie um, magic? Is that like the movie new final draft? Movie magic was pre-final draft. Pre-final draft. Yeah. Okay, right. I think it's still around for okay. um, budgeting and all that kind of stuff. But I think most people are using final draft. It was pre-all of that. Got it. And I quickly knew, yeah, I don't want to be giving notes on this stuff. I want to be giving you the content. How old were you at that point? 24? Yeah. That's and amazing. so I... And I just want to pause yeah. for a second and recognize that for our listeners and viewers, like, yes, you were a temp at Fox and yes, you, you know, like you said, everyone was really nice. And then you, they gave you the sheet and you got this job with Jeff and that speaks not only to great fortune. Yes. Right place, right time, but like your work ethic. And I know you personally, so I know that you showed up early you helped as much as possible. You were always ready to work and you were always pleasant. Like, and that's so important. Even if you're not doing the job that you were like, I'm meant to be a writer, which you weren't necessarily sure of yet, but like the way that you showed up for each step of the way for the temp job, for the the, the right. next job, like that speaks to like getting the next level up in opportunities. Right. And it's so important. And I'm sure you see that now with kids that work under you, you know, the young kids that are coming in. Yeah. When you recognize 
that work ethic, you just want to hold on to it because it's invaluable. And also, you know that you're of like mind. Yeah. So you're going to really be able to mentor that person because yeah. they're willing yeah. to learn and and all that. Yeah. So, yeah. So, yeah. Just no, quick, so yeah. It, it, it. So you started uh, writing specs. Yeah, I started writing specs. So it was at the time, it was like the the heyday of Fox drama. It was, so 90210 and Melrose were sort of well-established at that point, X-Files even, but it was um, Allie McBeal. Oh yeah, Allie McBeal. That was such a great show. Such a great show. Party Five. Yeah. You know, even New York Undercover. I mean, there were just, there were a lot of amazing dramas. And I knew all of the assistants because their bosses would call my boss. And so we would say, hey, you know, it's me, Jeff's calling for your boss. And I ended up becoming friendly with quite a few of the assistants. And my girlfriend needed, she was in um, grad school in San Diego and she needed a Sony camera, which was going to cost her like a boatload of money. And I knew that the party five people could get discounts at the Sony store. So I like arranged this thing to help my friend get a camera, Mm. my grad student friend. And went over and met finally face-to-face Deb Fisher, who I'd been talking to all the time. And she worked for the exec producers of Party of Five, and I worked for the network the network equivalent. And so we finally met. We're getting my friend Cindy this camera. Later, Deb and Cindy know one another, which is funny. And then I say, like, hey, is there anything ever open in the writer's room? as an assistant or anywhere on the, you know, I, I'd even go to editing because I did editing on my own projects when I was in college. So anything, anything. And she said, maybe something could open up, but right now we're staffed. And when I, I figure like when I was asking for this, it was in the summer and the show was, had sure. already been, writers had been back since June. And anyway, then come like October, Deb said, hey, I think there's going to be an opening. One of the writers is leaving to do a pilot and he's taking the assistant. And I was like, great. And so I went over and I met the writers and got hired. And that was, I think, in the fourth season of Party Five. And I did that for the remainder of that year. And then Chris Kaiser and Amy Lippman were each allowed an assistant at that point with whatever deal they made. So I became another assistant at their desk working right with Deb. Deb was writing. She was doing features, her own thing. I was doing my own specs, you know? Yeah. Uh, and then- How many specs were you writing? Oh just, gosh, I, mean, just... I don't even know. I feel like I wrote one for probably every drama on Fox. I mean, I definitely wrote Ally McBeal, Party of Five. Um, and were you directed to write those by a mentor or were you just like, I'm just going to write these so that I have them in my back pocket? Yeah, I just wanted to write them. That's so I just, smart. <laughs> I just was like, these are this, these are the tools in front of me. I'm I'm able to read these drafts. I'm able to see how they were crafted from the story pitch on the network call to a draft that's in front of you. And I'm like, oh, this is how they brought this to life. Let me see what it, what would be my idea. And mm. and then you just kind of go yeah. and do it. Yeah. And so it wasn't until later during party five when Chris Kaiser said, he was a great mentor. And he said, why don't you take this outline, this party five outline and, you know, write this one storyline and then I'll give you notes on it. And I was like, okay. Wow. And it was so, it was like big step. And I'm only, it's truly just practice to get his thoughts, but it was such a gift 
to sit down with a showrunner and hear yeah. on his own show. I mean, all of it was like intimidating and all the things it should be to make you feel that, you know, nervousness nervous yeah. and all that stuff. And then Deborah Sincata, who you just met, worked for Chris and Amy as their development exec. And she said to Deb Fisher and I, you guys should team up and be writing partners. Just you work for Chris and Amy who are writing partners. Why don't you guys do the same thing? And so we did and wrote a couple specs together. Those specs then got sent around town via Deb Sincata and we got an agent and then met everyone in town because the agents do that. They get yeah. to set you up on all your meetings. And then our first showrunner meeting was with J.J. Abrams for Alias. And we went and did that meeting and it turned into our first job. And then it was Alias for two years, the OC, Charmed for a year, and then Criminal Minds. And Deb and I wrote on that together for four years before she moved on. And then I stayed for another 12 years, Zillion 11 years, years something yeah. like that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. and you, you, so you were a writer on Criminal Minds, but then you graduated up to right. the top. Yeah. So when Deb and I started on that show, we were co-producer level. We had been co-producer level, I think on Charmed maybe the year before, but it was one of those new shows, you know, Criminal Minds was a new show. They only had this much left in the budget by the time we got hired. And so we were like, well, We'll do it, you know. Yeah, it's yeah. it's fine. Let's give this a go. And we yeah, so we were co-producer writers. Then by the time Deb left, we were co-exec producers. And then by season five on the show, it was a lot of writers left after season four. And we went from, you know, a healthy room of like 12 bodies to six, but we still had 24 episodes to oh do. My so it was insane. So season five and six were really intense. But by season six, I was co-running the show as an exec producer. And you were a new mom at the time? How old um, were the, the kids? The kids were, in season five and six, they were six and four. Yeah. I mean, how, what was that like? crazy. <laughs> I mean, you have you have an yeah. amazing partner. The two of you like work great together. Yeah. So thank God for that. But no, he's the key to all of this, honestly. Like mm. it was just he would tell you that at a certain point we played rock paper income. <laughs> and you know, that's how he looked at it and I was clearly <laughs> the one that was going to stay working. So, um, and because paper income, rock, paper, great. income. And then we ended up, you know, because we moved so far away from home, we didn't have family in our backyard no to help. No grandparents, no, yeah. none of that kind of help. And we both felt really strongly that um, it was important to have one of us present for the kids and in all those early years and everything. So we, you know, there were there were some crazy, you know, in the first couple of years of my son's life, we were juggling, like Kenny would still have shows to go do, whether they were improv or stand-up or whatever. And like, I'd come home, we'd high-five and he'd leave. Um, and then it just got to the point, once our daughter was born, he said, I just don't think it's going to be worth it anymore because I can't, like, the morning comes so early. Mm. And if I'm on stage till oh, one or two brutal. in the morning, yeah. like, I can't function. Yeah. I can't be my best self, you yeah. know? So that sort of is when that ended for him. And 
I feel bad about that because, as you know, he's such a funny person. He's so talented. And I feel like yeah. his funny gets wasted just on our living room. You know, like he needs an audience. Yes. So I've always felt that way. I, I really Well, I remember want when that. he came, when you guys came to Sabrina's party last, gosh, was that two years ago? It was almost two years ago now. Yeah. A year and a half. And I kept saying to Sabrina after that, I was like, it's so good to see Erica and Kenny. And I forgot how funny Kenny is. Like, he's just so, like, it's just, and it's so, like, subtle. And you're just like, ah! Like, it's just, he's so good. He's really funny. Yeah. He's so funny. He's so funny, you guys. So anyway, <laughs> that's been our journey. And then yeah. Criminal Minds has been this gift, you know, 15 seasons and that's in LA. Yeah. And, you know, I've had a hell but of a so commute. Wait, I want to brag been. on you. So oh. yes, yeah, that is a commute. It's been it's a commute, Glendale. but it's LA. It's LA. Like, it's just, I'm, it is what it is. You're yeah. commuting no matter what it yeah. is. But so you, uh, just to brag on you, because I know you won't do it, but so you, you moved your way up. And you became the the showrunner yeah. for Criminal Minds. Yeah. Did you say that already? Yeah. I missed it. Okay. Yeah. So in season six, I was co-running it. Oh, that's right. You did yeah. say that. Okay. Um, Ed Bernero was helping on the first spinoff of the show called Suspect right, Behavior. Right, right. Okay. And then Simon Mirren and I ran it as co-showrunners when Ed stepped away. That was season six. And then in season seven, both Ed and Simon moved on. And I was the last remaining writer. And it was... The show was, um, I think nobody really knew what the special sauce was, except for the ones who had been there from the beginning. And like bringing in someone new is something that was very typical of a network at the time. Mm. And I was so thankful that Nina Tassler saw the ability and strength. Nina is, I'm sorry, the show creator? Um, Nina Tassler used to run CBS. Got it. She was like the head of- Got it. Um, CBS Entertainment. So she was our network boss. Got and it. she had sort of seen what the show had gone through over the years and my role in the show in the last couple of years. And uh, with Ed's blessing of saying, you can leave this in Erica's hands, they did. Wow. And um, I felt like the show has always been sort of that middle child. It's literally... You know, I have a kid in 04, that show in 05, and a kid in 06. So it has been the middle child for yeah. our family. Yeah. And I've always felt such a protection over it that uh, the, the the show, the characters, the crew, the cast, all of it, I've just, because I was there from the beginning, and I yeah. just always wanted the best for it. Yeah. And so staying there was kind of a no-brainer. And the fact that it went on and on and on and on was every year just felt like a bonus for us, you know? So we were like, well, here we go. Now it's season seven, now it's season eight, all the way to, you know, when we air the final 10, it'll be season 15. So incredible. And people just love this show. They love this show so much. It's so resonant. So I want to speak to the fact that you are a woman and it, it's tough out there for female writers in general. And I've shared this before, I think in the symposium, but I also talk about it on my show, how the reason that I actually am writing and revising my novel now is that my friend, Annie Jacobson, who's also my mentor, who's a nonfiction writer, very successful, who started as a journalist, she, I came to her, I was 38 years old, no TV writing agent, I'd never sold a script, 
And I said, I have this idea for a TV pilot, but I don't know. It could be another format. And she looked at me dead in the eye. I'll never forget it. It was like the, one of those lightning bolt moments where this person that you respect so much, she said, write the book, write the book because you're an un, not un, um, you have never sold a script in Hollywood and you're a woman and you're 38, they will eat you alive. She said, if you write the book, you will own the manuscript and you'll have more control over it. And so I set about this monumental task of <laughs> writing a book. Yeah. And I also share this, this other story. Another woman I've had on the show is my friend Claudia Lano. I don't know if you know her. She's um, She did a bunch of – she does comedies. She's also a showrunner, show creator, prolific writer just like you. And I met her when I was 23. And I was like, I'm an actress. And I was like, but I write too. I didn't talk like that. I just am making fun of myself. (laughs) And she said, get a job as an assistant on a show. Get a job as a writer's assistant on a show. And I didn't listen. And I remember like when I met you and I fell in love with you and I was like, oh, that's so cool. And she does this and blah, blah, blah. And, And I was still, I was acting and pursuing acting. And I just watched your career go like this. I was like, that's what Claudia was talking about. You know, not that like that would have been my trajectory either, but I'm just saying like, it's hard to be a woman. And, you know, I mean, what, what do you, do you have anything to speak to that? I think it is hard. Just it's sort of like period, end of sentence. Right. But I also think it is all those other things that stand you apart, whether you're a man or a woman, right? It is the work ethic. It's the, you want to be around this person because they're not cruel (laughs) or, you know, all these other things that can happen in this business. We have to be so vulnerable as actors, as writers, as directors, even, you know, you're putting your art into the world. You're so vulnerable in that. And when there's people who just want to cut you down it makes you go quiet. It makes you do all this other mm. stuff where you're then not shining. And so I've been in plenty of rooms where you weren't encouraged to talk. You weren't encouraged to shine. Mm. And I knew that whenever I had the chance to have a room that I wanted everybody to know they were safe. Mm. And that this job is hard enough as it is. We don't need to be hurting anyone purposefully or, you know, I think there's a lot of people who are just like naturally think it's them or me and I've got to knock them down for myself to succeed. That's not how it is, but I know that's how a lot of people were raised or it's how they feel you have to be in the workspace. And yeah. you don't, you don't. Yeah. But then I think it takes people to make those changes along the way. Yeah. Leaders. And, yeah. And then, you know, my job is to do that, but also to, you know, help the next person up and say, okay, and now you're going to help the next person, right? Yeah. And it's sort of that deal that you make with your replacement. Yeah. And like, they're not your replacement yet, but they will be. And when they are, you need to know that they're going to keep doing the same thing. Yeah. It's like raising kids. It (laughs) is. Yeah. Like you want them to go out and be kind and have integrity and, yeah, you know. Yeah. I love that perspective. That's so generous. Makes sense. So tell me what you're doing now. So now I have a company that's through Disney and Deb Sincata, who I knew back in the day with Chris Namey is um, the president of development. And we have 
projects. We have two for ABC Network. One I'm writing and one I'm godmothering, which is another big thing that I'm encouraging people to do who what have does that a mean? skill set. That sounds amazing. So it's helping writers who have never run a show themselves, but they're great writers and they have great ideas and just saying, I'll be there beside you. And when your show gets picked up, I'll help you run it. I'll help you figure out the budget and I'll help you hire the directors and go through casting sessions and, you know, all of those little things that need to happen that can feel overwhelming initially. But once you do it, then you've got that skill set. It's riding a bike really, but it can feel really overwhelming because in addition to all of those things that need to happen, you need to keep the story moving forward and the writer's room going and all of that. So there's opportunities to help these other writers and I want to, when I meet people that I connect with on that level and I like the ideas that they have, I'm like, hey, I'll partner up with you. So I have one of those in development for ABC Network, and it's a passion project for the guys. It's um, Matt Partney and Corey Abbott, who have had success in selling pilots, but nothing's gone on air yet. And it's a story of Matt's family that they come from a family of nurses and everybody works in the same hospital. And you go back in time to 1964 when the matriarch of the family really founded like the accident room, which was the precursor to the emergency room. And she's a hero at work, but as we see present day, she's not a hero at home. Mm. And it's like, she sacrificed so much for so long. And, you know, there's, kids who are okay with it and kids who aren't. And it's just a complicated, messy family drama. Yeah. So that one's a lot of fun. And then I'm writing one about a mother and daughter who discover that they are both working for an intelligence agency. (gasps) The mom has retired and the daughter got tapped to be in it. And the mom figures that out and then she rejoins. So fun. it's really fun. You're like tapping back into your alias. Yeah. Words. Yeah, absolutely. And That's I have a so whole, great. you know, I have family that I always say they're the heroes and I just write about the heroes because my brother is a police officer and I have family in the different intelligence agencies and all of that. So this is tapping into and sort of honoring the sacrifices they've all made. I love that. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So you just you're just not stopping anytime. I'm not, not trying. Yeah, I don't want to stop. There's a documentary called The Heart of Nuba oh. that Ken Carlson directed, and it's about his friend Tom Katina, who is the only doctor in the Nuba Mountains in Sudan. So it's the story of this remarkable man and all the people he works with and treats. And so I've adapted that doc into a limited series. So that's in the works. That's amazing. And then, oh my God, um, I can't wait for that. Yeah. And then a couple others that I probably can't talk about yet, Got but they're it. all, you know, deals are being done for those. And then I produced my first feature called The Biggest Little Farm. Oh my gosh. Yes. Talk about The Biggest yeah. Little Farm. I want to hear about this. I want our listeners to yes. hear about this. Yeah. So John Chester is the filmmaker. He's an extraordinary human being and storyteller. And I happen to grow up with him. So when he and his wife, Molly, bought this farm out in Moore Park in 2011, John sort of put away all of his cameras and focused on being a farmer. And every time we would go out there, I'd say, you're filming this though, right? Like you're filming how this pasture just changed. 
and you're documenting it, right? And he's like, yeah, 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 yeah. And then eventually he saw the changes and that, you know, initially it's, yeah, there's, there's, look at this, the land's coming alive again. And then something bad would happen. Mm -hmm. And then he'd feel like they failed and then they'd come back up and things would be okay. And it wasn't until he could sort of stand back after seven years of this and say, there's a story to tell here. Mm. And thankfully he did because it's such a beautiful story. So he and I worked on the story with a bunch of other amazing people and we ended up selling the show or selling the film in Toronto last year to Neon. And Neon had it in the theaters in May, and it really ran nationwide all summer. And now it's available on iTunes and Amazon and eventually soon Hulu. In November, I think it'll be on Hulu. And so it's kind of getting a second wind because people are able to watch it in their own living rooms now. So it's a beautiful, beautiful story and so hopeful, so inspirational. It's it's the kind of storytelling I think we all need right Mm. now. And people are able to really connect even though they aren't farmers, you can look at this and see what the challenges are and relate. And there's a big, a big challenge with some coyotes on mm-hmm. the farm that are eating some chickens, spoiler alert. But John's able to sort of look at that as an opportunity for a relationship. Like, how is this coyote helpful in my life. Mm. Not just how is he hurtful. And then after people watch the film, they're like, I've got a coyote. Of course. I'm like, that's such a metaphor. Ding, 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 ding. Like, oh, it's so great. Like, I've got a coyote and I'm trying to figure out how to work with them instead of against them. And, And it's just, it's that kind of thing that I think is universal, but we're doing it in this way that's sort of distracting because it's this beautiful journey of a couple wanting to make a difference in the world and live in harmony with nature. Yeah you know, easier said than done. No kidding. Well, and it's so grounding and refreshing to hear and watch a story like that because, I mean, like my son, who's 10, we live right in the middle of West Hollywood. We always have. I've lived in the same house for 20 years. And he will proclaim openly, I don't like the city, mom. I don't want to live in the city anymore. I want to live with there's wide open spaces. Like, He just, he really doesn't like, it's too, he has some sensory issues and he has ADHD and so forth, but he just, it's too much for him. It's just all too much. And he just, we go, my parents live off the 101 up, up, and it's just quiet. And there's kids in the neighborhood. He can literally get on his bike and it's just that kind of world. And I'm also obsessed with farming. Like I have a dream of like one day owning a farm and having like the wind things and like being (laughs) off the grid and like having chickens and goats. And it's just so, I don't know, to feel like grounded and with the earth like that. I've just, I've never experienced that. I'm such a city kid, you know? Right. I love that. I can't wait to watch it. I know. I'm excited for you to see it. It's really, it's really magical. Oh. Yeah. Oh my gosh. So... Is there any advice that you would give to someone who is maybe starting out their writing career, regardless of their age or gender or, you know, where they live, just someone who's kind of having trouble making that first step into like, I have this thing, it's burning inside me, but I want to write it, but I don't know. And just that, do you have any advice for somebody like that? I think when you have that burning desire to tell a story, that's your gut telling you, you have to. It's almost a fight or flight instinct. You have to write. Writers have to write. 
So whatever medium you choose, whether it's a book or a script or a film, if you want to shoot it, whatever you want to do, I think just tell your story. Mm-hmm. And just remember, like, you are the only one who has your story. Yeah. And, you know, sometimes it starts with you even doing a self-analysis. Why do I want to tell this story so badly? What is it about this? And sometimes that can sort of quiet the voices in your head or you you really can analyze it better. Yeah. But I think it's when you have that desire and it's so strong, you have to listen to it because you'll regret it if you don't. Yeah. That's the thing, right? And then the years go by. I've found this with stories I've started and then shoved away. I'm so guilty of this. And it's part of why I teach people. It's like, just do it. Just even if it's like using your voice memo on your phone and just Mm -hmm. like getting it out of your body, getting it out of your head. Yep. That I'll think of something I was going to write like 20 years ago. I'm like, oh, why didn't I finish that? You know what I mean? Yeah. And it is regret. I have regret because I don't have a grasp on that story anymore and it's not what's coming up now. Right. It's like, you got to get it out onto the page or whatever it is. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah, I'm always surprised when I go back and read something that I had written. I, you know, I'm like, oh, I'm glad I told that then because that story's not even in my head anymore. Yeah. Yeah. So different. Everything mm-hmm. changes. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Thank you so much. You're welcome. You're amazing. Oh, you're oh my so amazing. God. Like, I could just talk to you forever. <laughs> Um, okay, so I'm just going to ask you three questions that I ask every guest. Okay. And then a fun lightning round of questions. Okay. What do you think about, Erica, when you hear the word love? Mm, I think family. Yeah. If you could live anywhere in the world other than where you're living now, where would you live? Oh, wow. I think... It's a toss-up. I think, I think I'd go move onto Apricot Lane Farms with John and Molly because mm. it's so beautiful. Yeah. Um, or go try to find my own Apricot Lane Farms. Mm. Yeah. Or Italy. Yes. <gasps> Any particular part? No, we just went for the first time last Christmas, and I just <sighs> felt better there. I ate better. I felt better. I walked all the time. It was you are just, the third person in the last week that has said those exact words. They said, oh, I just, I interviewed another one. Oh, it was Jenna Elfman who was oh, on the show. Yeah. She went with her family and she said, it's just, they know how to do it. <laughs> she's they like, do. She's like, everything is just so like, oh, come, come. Like everyone's so relaxed. They're yes. like enjoying it. They she's enjoy like, and we life. don't enjoy it that way. I know. It was very, that's a good way to put it. They just, they enjoy it. They enjoy life. It's like no hurry for anything. You walk everywhere. Oh, I love that. I miss walking. I know. I really miss walking, actually. I love my car, but yeah. yeah. Um, How do you define serenity? Oh, that's a good question. (laughs) How do I define it? Just finding stillness, Mm -hmm. being present, quiet. Quiet. Yeah, when we can grab it. <laughs> okay, lightning round of questions. Fireside or Oceanside? Oceanside with the fire? <laughs> yes! Good answer, good answer, good answer. Favorite junk food? <laughs> Just potato chips, I think. <laughs> Any particular kind? Um, no. <laughs> no, I'm not like, not, it, I used, it used to be salt and vinegar, but. Any whatever, yeah. whatever they got there's at craft service. Uts, there's an Uts brand, or no, no, hers back east that makes this <gasps> old bay chip. 
Yes. Yeah, I would say if there's... They did a show about it on The Office. Yeah. They did an episode yes. about it. Oh, my gosh, And Jim's right. trying to get it for Karen. Yes. Because you can only get you can it only get back it. there. Yeah. Um, yeah, hers of Pennsylvania makes it. Those would be if I could only have one chip oh. for the rest of my life. <laughs> crab, crab chips. I love it. Do you like theme parks? I like going because the kids and all that, but no. <laughs> and part of it was from a, when I was a kid, maybe, yes, but I'm not a roller coaster person. Oh, me neither. And oh. if it's super crowded, not a fan. And since I worked on Criminal Minds, all I see are the creeps. Right. I bet you do. It's almost weird. It's like it, it's almost like things go sepia tone and then the people that are there without children stand out to me. That's one question I didn't ask you and I want to ask it now because we've, I think we've had a conversation about this over the years. Like working on a show like Criminal Minds is intense because you're like, I would assume, researching all these psychopaths and like getting statistics and real numbers. And how has that affected your own psychology, your own like mental well-being? So in the first couple of years of the show, it was really, it was really disturbing because I had never even written on a procedural before, let alone something about serial killers. And a lot of the writers had not either. So, I mean, they had all written character and procedural, but it was you know, learning about serial killers is a, is a very specific research. And in the first couple of seasons, it, it was, um, very upsetting. I didn't have a a wall built up. And then probably by like the fourth, fifth, sixth year, it was almost like being in, um, grad school or something where you're, it's textbook and you're reading and you're like, oh, well, this thing here, kind of reminds me of this person over yeah. here. And then you're just fascinated in the behavior of it. Yeah. So I stopped being as paranoid. I yeah. think paranoia was hitting. And also the kids were so much younger. Yeah. You just want to protect them and make the world safe. And then you're reading this stuff that's saying the world is not safe. Yeah. So it was that sort of overcoming the idea that you don't have control over that. Yeah. You might think you do, and you control what you can, but the bad people in the world are out there. Yeah. And all you can hope is that the good people are going to find them. And that's really the heart of Criminal Minds. For me, it was always about the heroes. Mm. And I feel like it's lasted 15 seasons because people want to cheer on the good guys every week. They want to be scared, sure, but they're watching to see those relationships with the heroes. And yeah. And how those heroes deal in their day-to-day life, that's so fascinating. I mean, that's always my favorite part. Right. It's like, oh, how are they going to get through that in their personal life while they're juggling this other thing? So it's so beautifully done. So daytime sex or nighttime sex? Nighttime. (laughs) You didn't want to answer that. (laughs) She was like, I don't know. I don't know what I'm talking about that. Um, Shower or bathtub? Shower. You don't have time for bath. I rarely take them. You know, I... I hearken back to being a kid growing up with my older brother and my little brother. We shared a bathroom. <laughs> oh, God. And I'd be like, I am not going to soak in a tub where Ew, your feet have been. Yeah, gross. No, thanks. Yeah. <laughs> so it just like never was a relaxing option for me. Yeah. But everybody says they're so amazing. And I and when I do it, I'm usually like worn out, sick. It's extreme. Sure. When I actually take 20 minutes to take a bath. Yeah. 
but they're so lovely when you do it. Yeah. I'm like, oh, I need to do this more often. And then a year goes by. How well, about now you? you have a great invitation to do it because you have a lovely new bathtub. I I guess same. I love baths. In the winter, I air quoting winter because we're in L.A., but I take them much more frequently in the winter. But I have to, like, my kid either has to be at his dad's or, well, he just has to be out of the house because otherwise he'll just come in every three minutes right. and I can't actually relax. No. No. Right. On a scale of one to ten, how good are you at making lasagna? Seven. Really? Oh, yeah. That's hot. I really like to bake, not cook. Okay. And lasagna is baking to me. It's like one of the only things that I could actually say a seven about when it comes to cooking because it's more baking than it is cooking. Yes. What what things do you bake? Um, Anything. Cookies, cakes, cupcakes, pies. Oh. Do you do that with your kids? Uh, yeah, my daughter loves to do it. And my son, too. When he was little, he used to love to make muffins with me. We would always – it was rare that we would store by any sweets. We would make them. And I still stand by that because there's no preservatives when you make it yourself. Oh, and they're just so much they're more so delicious. Much right out yeah. of the oven, they're still warm. Uh, oh, there's nothing better. There's things I can't make because I will finish all of it. And it's really <laughs> just brownies. I will eat brownies until they're gone. It's a problem. And I will not feel well. <laughs> But, but then if I do yourself. it again, and I'm like, well, this time I definitely won't eat the whole pan because I got so sick last time, and then nope. it happens again. So brownies are dangerous in my house. Yes. Yes. Oh, I'm going to come over the next time you make brownies. Okay. What's your biggest pet peeve? Oh, gosh. Wow. I don't even know. That's crazy. Hmm. Maybe you don't have one. I don't think I have one. Oh, that's great. I don't wow, think I, have I envy one. that. I actually, you know what? It's funny now that I'm thinking of it. I don't think I have one pet peeve. I think it's just for me. It's um, I don't know when people don't take responsibility when they make a mistake and when they try to pass it off. That's a big pet peeve of mine. Yeah. And it recently happened to me this week where I was like, and I had to confront the person, mm-hmm. and they still lied about oh, it. And uh, I was like, oh yeah, no, I actually have proof, like in an email, you know. But yeah, yeah, that's a. Well, I guess that if you look at something like that, that that would be a pet peeve. There's also, we were lucky enough to go to Japan this summer, and there's such a uh, stunning culture. And the fact that manners really matter there was refreshing. And you didn't realize, but in public, nobody's talking on their phone. They might be texting or whatever, but even if you're on a train, you're not hearing somebody else's conversation. Wow. You're not, you know, at Target trying to buy a birthday card and you're hearing somebody else's conversation because they're on their cell phone. Yeah. So it's like that I think is a pet peeve where I'm kind of, I wouldn't do that. And so when other people are doing it, it just annoys me because I wouldn't do that. Yeah. That kind of thing. Totally. Yeah. I share that same pet peeve with you. I don't like that either. Superpower choice, invisibility, ability to fly, or super strength? Hmm. Can I add one? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Traveling at the speed of light. Like, oh, yes. So that I don't have that commute any, you know what Teleporting. I mean? Teleporting. Oh, then you, you could go to so Italy all the time. Yeah. You could go just for dinner. Yeah. <laughs> right? But you need it to have it so that you could do your, you could teleport your kids and your husband too. Yeah, it would, it would be like a circle. You'd have to all hold hands. Yes. And you could all go. 
You're writing the script. I can see it as happening. The family that teleports. Oh my God, that sounds so amazing. Would you rather have a cat tail or cat ears? Ears. <laughs> right? So then you just be like, yeah. mm, scratch it, scratch it. Um, what was the name of your first pet? There's two. One was a pet that we kind of adopted from my uncle. She was a fancy Lhasa Apso named Shalimar. Oh, stop it. I know. And then <laughs> another dog came our way. He was lost, um, like, on the side of the road, never found his owners. And he was a white Lhasa mix. This was, you know, years after Shalimar had died. And he was a little scruffier. And he got named by my brothers MacGyver after the TV show. So we go from Shalimar, fancy Shalimar, to MacGyver. That's such a great story. And what was the name of the street you grew up on? Well, there's a couple because there's DC and then there's here. So Hillcrest Drive or Morning Mist Drive. Okay, we're going to go with Morning Mist (laughs) since you gave me a choice. And we're going to combine the pet names. So we have Shalimar, MacGyver, Morning Mist. That is your porn name. (laughs) That's a good one. That's a good one. You don't know what's coming. (laughs) it's a sexy detective but also there's some action adventure in it and then there's a little bit of meditation at the end (laughs) exactly oh my god erica i love you so much i love you too. thank you so much for doing this you were so welcome this was fun thanks so much for listening guys i really hope you enjoyed my conversation with erica join me next week where i have a special bonus It almost sounded like I was going to say where I have a special boner, but I won't have a special boner. I have a special bonus episode. (laughs) I told you Erica makes you feel like a teenage boy. I have a special bonus episode for you on New Year's Eve. I did it last year and I loved it. And um, yeah, so (laughs) be on the lookout for that. If, If you're subscribed, it'll just pop up in your, in your playlist. And if you're not subscribed, what are you doing? get subscribed subscribe and also be sure to check out unplug.com and if you are in the la area and you go to a class you can mention milf podcast and you will be able to redeem one free class um, before the end of january thanks so much for listening guys i love you keep going